Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. The people inside New Spring exist for those who are outside. We want outsiders to become insiders so there will be no outsiders in eternity. That is who we are. Well, I've told the other audiences, so I guess I'll tell you too, this weekend, I I don't know where this is headed. I just want to talk to you today about New Spring and how do you put, for me, the first week of June, Mary Allison, I'll be here 36 years. How do you put 36 years in 30 minutes? I didn't. <laughs> I took 10 extra last, last service and, and last, at 4 o'clock too. But let me just tell you what this is about. Every once in a while, we do what we call a DNA series here at New Spring. We'll take about two to three weeks to talk about Frankly, what a crazy church we are (laughs) and and why we are what we are and what we're out to accomplish. Now, I know that some of you have been here for a long time. Uh, Typically, New Spring uh, tends to grow pretty quickly. So if you've been here uh, six months, you're an old timer here at New Spring. But some of us have been here for longer than that, a lot of years. And it's healthy for us to go back and revisit what makes us what we are. Because for those of you who've been part of anything great in life, uh, where your where your culture shifted, your internal culture shifted, you know that vision leaks, you know, and what you do organically and and what you do because it's the right thing to do, it can become institutional after a while. So, for all of us who are healthy, uh, been here for a long time, it's healthy for us to be reminded of of who we are and wh- why we are what we are. But thankfully, here at New Spring, we're a church that's privileged to have new explorers every weekend. Um, and one of, the, one of my favorite places to visit here on our campus when I walk around, and by the way, sometime if, you've, if you're a New Spring, if you've never been around the campus, you might just walk around because every once in a while, somebody that's been here like three or four years say, where's the coffee shop? And I know you come in the south entrance, <laughs> you know, or, or, the, or, the, or the west entrance because, you know, there are so many wonderful things around here. We would encourage you just to walk around and explore and see all the things that are here. But we have new explorers every weekend. And one of my favorite places to visit is first time check-in uh, for kids security. You know, if you, if you have kids and you check your kids in for security, you know, if you're a new, new springer, there's a, there are several places where you go, but there's, there's one uh, area where if you're a first time visitor at new spring and you're checking your kids and you can go there because there's more information there. And I love going back there and especially, you know, here people, well, we had 45 at first time uh, kids will check in at new spring this week or 50 or whatever. And, and I'm always delighted that we have new explorers every weekend. And I'm also bringing this series to you, uh, for a reason during COVID God grew new spring. That's the strangest thing. Uh, if you could set aside all the heartbreak of COVID, which we really can't, but if you could just set it aside for a moment and suspend that and look at it from a church's perspective, if someone could have come to me at the beginning of 2020 and told us what was going to happen with COVID, I would have thought this is going to be a, a difficult year. New spring is going to shrink during this time, but the very opposite happened. New Spring expanded. And there are people all over the United States and frankly around the world who consider New Spring their church because they got acquainted with us during the COVID situation. We were already streaming our services, but we started streaming our Kids World experience and streaming student service. And then Noah's Window started and Noah's Window for Kids and Noah's Window for Students and just a whole bunch of wonderful people around the world call themselves New Springers who've never been on our campus yet. And then on top of that, a lot of people were reluctant to leave their homes, either because of health reasons or for other reasons, around our region. And they became New Springers as well. So I felt like this was a good time for us to have a DNA series to talk about what we're about. Now, here's the thing. New Spring is a simple church. We don't don't do very many things. We only do about five things, and we try to do them real well. My guess is if you've attended New Spring very long, you've picked up organically what we're about. It's pretty easy to spot what we're about. I had a good friend visit back last winter, and he is a megachurch pastor. He pastors an extraordinary church, not in the United States. 
And his church is kind of an outlier for the area where he is. So there just aren't a lot of mega churches in that part of the world. So because of that, he's well, well known and very well listened to here in the United States. And he winds up visiting a lot of churches. But he's a personal friend of mine. And so he just reached out to me and said, can I come like spend four or five days with you? And he did. And he was here for one of our services. And he came back to my office during the Sunday services, in between the two morning services, he came back to my office and he said, you know, Mark, it's the most extraordinary thing. He said, everybody can tell you what New Spring is about, from the kids in the hallways and kids' world to guest services to just people walking around, people in, in the New Spring store. He said, I've never been in a church where everybody can tell you what this church is about. And I love that. So I'm guessing that you picked it up organically for the most part. But since I'm leader here at the church, I wanted you to hear it from my heart so that you would know officially what we're about as a church. Okay, so where do you start? Uh, As I said in a 30, 35-minute message to talk about a journey that's taken us decades. Well, here's the thing I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask for a real big favor. I want you to bear with me for a few moments because the first few minutes of this talk is information. It'll be like reading an encyclopedia article. It'll be like reading something on Wikipedia or or maybe watching some sort of institutional talk. And I'm going to ask you, please, to listen for the first 10 or 15 minutes, even though it may be kind of dry, because what I'm going to share with you right now is critically important. Not only critically important to New Spring, but I'm well aware of the fact that churches all around the country and pastors around the country watch our services. So I'm not just speaking to New Spring. I'm speaking to a broader audience. When it's all said and done, there are three models of churches. I don't know too many things in life, but I know churches. I started pastoring when I was 20 years old. I started preaching when I was 16. Actually, what you might call conferences, I preached my first one when I was 16. I preached five my senior year in high school, and I've never slowed down since that time. I grew up in a pastor's home, uh, and I've been, as I said, pastoring for the last 44 years, and I travel the country, and I speak to pastors and leaders. I, I don't know how this happened. I remember being the kid preacher, and now I'm an elder statesman. How did that, you know, what, how does that happen? <laughs> like, we're going to bring in this Moses-type character, and, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm the boy preacher, you know. <laughs> but I do know churches, and I want to tell you there are three models of churches. Now, real real quickly, I'm not talking about the fact that I believe churches have different assignments, and that's true. A church can be a great church, but it can have a whole different assignment because of its situation. For instance, an urban church that's on the campus of a major university is not going to have exactly the same ministry as a church that's in a rural area with an aging demographic. They can be wonderful churches and do exactly what God wants them to do, but their ministries are going to be nuanced and different. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something way more foundational than that. There are three kinds of churches. We'll call the first one the system model. Um, Sometimes it's a historical model. Uh, Sometimes it can actually be called denominational, but that's a little bit deceptive because the church can be a denominational church but not have this particular model. Sometimes it's called a traditional model. But at the end of the day, this model of church is defined by a system, usually historical. And what happens in that church is defined by history. And so if you're new to that kind of church and they do something quirky and you can ask them, why is it that you do what you do? And they'll just answer something like this. This is just what a Baptist church is. This is just what a Catholic church is. This is what a Methodist church is. I'm not knocking any of those because they're, you know, they like, like I say, just because they're part of a denomination doesn't mean they're in a denominational or historical model. But there's the idea when you ask why they do what they do, well, you know, Uh, It's just what we are. And so if there was a vision statement in a system church, which vision statement there is probably a little bit of an oxymoron, but if there was a vision statement, it would be, well, that's just the way it is, or that's the way it's always been. And if you've ever been in one of those kinds of churches, my, my guess is that you've bumped your head on one of those two statements. It's just who we are. We just do what we do because this is the way it's always been done. Now, the second model of church is a knee-jerk reaction to that. And I'm going to call it, for lack of better terms, the marketing model. Now, when I say marketing model, I mean basically this. This is a church that has decided that in order to keep people in the seats and in order to keep finances coming in, we're going to have to find out what people want and give it to them. It's the same principle that happens with an automobile company. You know, if you go into a car maker, if you go into a, a, a car dealership, 
chances are there's, there's been a whole lot of marketing that's taken place, a lot of marketing surveys to determine what you want in a car, what you like in a car, what you want a car to do, how much you want to pay for a car. There's this marketing model. Same thing happens if you go get a hamburger after the service, one of the major hamburger chains. They've, they've done all kinds of marketing studies to find out what you want, how they can get you to buy a hamburger. Well, there are a lot of churches today, in fact, this is becoming probably the predominant model of church. They, they're, they're marketing and, and I understand why they do that. It's typically a reaction to the system model. See, a system model church tends to age and shrink. You know, it doesn't work very well to tell young people, do it just because. And so for that reason, system model churches tend to age and shrink. Now, yeah, I'm going to tell you something. Just me, and as I said at the beginning, this is not a sermon. This is just me talking. I don't even know where this talk is going to go, except I know I'm telling you the truth, and I'm also explaining New Spring Church. I guess the number one problem of American churches is that we're leaving God's word. I don't mean New Spring. That's the number one problem. But the most functional problem of the American church is the aging of the American church. Now, I say that very carefully because someone could hear that. You say, Mark, are you just saying that you're a church for young people and we don't want older people here? That's, that's just a complete misconception. I mean, for one thing, you know, the board that, that makes the decisions here at New Spring Church, two of our board members are in their middle 80s, and they're forward-thinking, young-thinking. They're radical sometimes. I mean, they have excited vision for the future. I mean, they've been successful business people. And, and uh, so that's the last thing I'm saying. A church needs to have all ages. But I will tell you this. I travel and I speak in a lot of churches and sometimes great churches. And I'm sometimes I walk in and my chin is on the ground. I'm so used to New Spring and seeing all the ages. I'll walk in and I realize this church probably doesn't have a shelf life of another five to eight years. One of the problems is that so many of these churches in the system model have a hard time communicating with younger people because, as I said, it doesn't do very well, it doesn't work very well to tell a younger audience you just do it just because. And then the second reason why the marketing model is a reaction to the system model is the system model quickly becomes outdated when it comes to understanding people's problems and needs. If you've ever been in a system model church, they're trying to solve problems that happened 35, 40, and 50 years ago. And I go into these churches every once in a while, and they feel like they're speaking into the context at large, the, the cultural context at large. And I say to them, you haven't missed one bus. You've missed a whole fleet of buses. So oftentimes the marketing reaction, the marketing model is a reaction to that that says, well, we're not going to be a system model church. We're going to find out what people want. In order to keep seats in the seats, we're going to go out and discover what makes people interested in church, and we're going to give them that. The vision statement of the marketing model is it's what people want. And for all of us who've been in a systems model church, we can understand the attractiveness of it, but unfortunately, it's even more deadly than the first model. Actually, both of these models, both the system model and the marketing model, work against the one thing that a church is about. It's life change. I mean, I'm going to talk about New Spring Church for the next two weeks, but at the end of the day, if you want to know what New Spring Church is about, we eat, sleep, drink, breathe, life change. We want people's lives to change. If people's lives aren't changing, there's no reason for us to exist. I mean, if, if, if a church is a church, don't tell me what your budget is. Don't tell me how many people you have on the staff. Don't tell me how many people your worship centers can seat. If you're a church of Jesus Christ, the question is, whose life is being changed? Amen. And both the system model and the marketing model work against life change. If I walk into a church with a broken life, which I have and all of us do, if I walk into a church with a broken life, I don't need to hear it's always been this way. And I sure don't need to hear, we will tell you whatever you, you want to hear. I mean, here's the thing. In our marketing model of churches today, we have churches trying to make people comfortable with sin. The cure for being poisoned is not more poison. Amen. Amen. If I walk into a church with a broken life, I need help. And that brings me to the third model. And we'll just, and this is terrible. I should have come up with a better title, but in the absence of a better title, we'll just call it the owner and founder's model. Because at the end of the day, the church is not about the pastor, and I'll go a step further. The church is not about the people. The church is about Jesus. 
I mean, he said, upon this rock, he said, upon this rock, I, Jesus, will build my church. And see, at the end of the day, the test of a church is not what, has the system, what does the system say or what does the denominational say? And the, answer, the, 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 the solution for a church is not to give people whatever marketing studies say. The answer is what does the owner and founder say in the owner's manual about what a church is supposed to be? After all, we're being evaluated. See, I'm, I'm well conscious of the fact that as leader of this church, I'm not going to give an account to social media I'm not, to, I'm not going to give an account to the media at large. I'm not going to give an account at the university. And I'm not even giving an account to some denomination somewhere. I'm going to stand one-on-one before the Son of God who bought the church. And he's going to ask me, did you do what I wanted you to do? Say, Mark, how do you know that? Hey, this is real good. Do you ever get a Bible with red letters? If you get a Bible with red letters, you know the red letters are the words that Jesus spoke. So you're not surprised when you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get all this red ink because, you know, that's the story of Jesus. But if you've ever had a red-letter Bible, something kind of weird can happen because you get over to the book of Revelation, you think you're going to read about prophecy, and all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of red ink, and Jesus is talking. And what's really important about Revelation 2 and 3, actually the prophecy about the end time doesn't start till chapter 4. Chapters 1 through 3 are about the time we're living in right now. So John is on the island of Patmos. He's the pastor at the church at Ephesus, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. And for the first time, Jesus begins to speak directly to the church. See, Jesus goes back to heaven in Acts 1. The church starts in Acts 2. And a lot of the apostles and others wrote to the church. But what's really cool about Revelation 2 and 3 is Jesus starts talking directly to the church. He's going to give report cards to seven churches that existed contemporaneously in Asia Minor. So here's what Revelation 2 says. This is the message from the one who holds the seven, the word there means messengers or pastors in his right hand, and the one who walks among the seven churches. And then look at this next line. I know all the things you do. Well, you want to know what gets me up at 3 o'clock in the morning and worries me? That's what worries me. Jesus is saying, I'm walking among all the churches. These are my churches, and and I'm checking them out. And Jesus is saying, Mark, I know what you guys are doing at New Spring, good and bad. And that's when he launches into seven messages to seven. You know, he doesn't say, oh, here's the church at large. Jesus starts talking about individual churches, what he's happy about, what he's not happy about. To the church at Ephesus, that was a pastor, pastor by Apostle John. I mean, notice that Jesus isn't sugarcoating this. John is the one he gave his mama to. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, John, this is, you know, he gave Mary to John and said, please take care of her. So, I mean, Jesus says to John, you know, you got great teaching there, but you're kind of losing the love thing. You're not as loving as you should be. And to the church at Pergamum, he said, you're married to the culture. You tolerate stuff you shouldn't tolerate. Instead of representing heaven to the culture, you're trying to represent the culture to heaven. Jesus said, guys better straighten out. I'm going to take your charter away from you. To the church at Sardis, (laughs) thought about this when I've been speaking in some churches. He said to the church at Sardis, you have a reputation that you're alive, but I know you're dead. Hmm. My favorite of the messages, and if you're a New Springer, you know I love talking about this church because I really want to believe this is what New Spring is. Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, you got a green light, just keep rolling. He said, I know you're up against it and you got a lot of opposition and cultures against you. But Jesus said, I, I, know, I know what you're about. You're about the word of God and you're about people. So Jesus said, I'm giving you an open door and nobody can close it. Just keep rolling. To the church at Laodicea, he said, I don't know where you are. Sometimes you're with the word of God. Sometimes you're not with the word of God. You're hot, you're cold. And Jesus said, you're like lukewarm water. And boy, in a very graphic thing, Jesus said, you make me sick at my stomach. If you don't straighten out, I'm going to throw you up. Hmm. So I think it's important for us to understand that a church, in order, and you see, here's the thing. A church is not a church because it puts a sign out front and says it's a church. It's not a church because it belongs to a denomination. That's not what makes a church a church. A church has a charter because it is doing what Jesus wants us to do. Only then is a church a real church. I remember when I was in college, I was taught that there is a line of succession, that if you're part of this particular group, then you're an authentic church. No, that's not what makes you an authentic church. 
You're not a true church because you're a Baptist church or a Catholic church or a Pentecostal church. You're a true church. We're a true church if we operate according to the owner and the founder. And nothing short of that makes us a church. Having ADD, I'm so thankful for this. The job of the church is really simple. (laughs) I don't know if I have any sisters or brothers here who have ADD. If you give me a list with more than three items, I'm lost. People say, here's how to come to my house, and they'll give me three streets. I'm I'm so lost by that point. I've lost the whole thing. (laughs) So, you know, I hear, oh, there's a list of five things you have to do. I'm like, I'm just not going to be able to do it. Thankfully, (laughs) Jesus gets us down to two things. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Remember I told you everything is about life change? Here's the word of God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And thankfully, I love this. All this is of God. Church didn't bring it about. We didn't do it ourselves. All this is of God. Who Watch three, word, three times we're going to see this word. Actually, four times. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the heads up ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling. There's the word again. The world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. Can I get an amen on that? Whoa, I'm so glad for that. And he has committed to us the heads up. Message of reconciliation. Whoa, there's the word. And and actually, it occurs two more times in this context. Reconcile, reconcile, reconciliation. What is God about? He's about reconciling. See, that's the world's problem. I mean, if I ask you what the world's problems are, I guess you and I could come up with a whole list. And I guess technically they'd be true, but to to God, they all telescope back into the single problem of the world. The single problem of the world is sin has caused a broken relationship between us and God. You know, in the marketing model church, a lot of times the message that we hear is we're okay. We just need a little tweaking, but that's wrong. My problem is I was born into a world with a broken relationship with God. I mean, it was broken because my, the, the federal head of the human race, Adam, sinned, and we were all in, in his and Eve's body at that time. And then on top of that, just so that we'll understand, we've sinned too. Here's what the Bible says on that, Romans 5.12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the whole world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So I wasn't born into this world okay. I was born in a broken relationship. But the story of this book is not not the story of a religion. It's the story of God making a way for us to be reconciled with him. And so that's the thing. See, God is not the Pillsbury Doughboy in the sky who sweeps sin under the rug and says, oh, try to do better next time. Every sin in God's universe has got to be paid for. God is a God of infinite love. He's also a God of infinite justice. But if I pay for my sin, I got to go to hell. And God is like, I don't want that to happen. So what does he do? He sends his son into the world, and Jesus lives a perfect life, takes that perfect life to the cross, and the way God looked at it, all my sins are clicked and dragged and placed on him. And he pays for the sin in the presence of God. And then he turns right back around, and he gives me his righteousness so that I can be reconciled to God. And by the way, God has that offer on the table for all the billions of people in the world today. Let's read it. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And then this is a verse that every time I read this, I just, I I have to take a deep breath because it's so huge. I I don't even, I feel like I'm in, in the holy of holies when I read this verse. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the reconciliation. Hey, I'm not going to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm below average. Perfect? I can't be perfect for 10 minutes. But I'm going to heaven. I don't deserve it. If I were God, I wouldn't have let me come because he knows everything about me. He knows more about me than I know. I shouldn't be able to be there on my own. But God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then the Bible says this, and I ask you heads up both times. God has given to us two things. Number one, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation and then the message of reconciliation. That's why I say it's so simple. That's what the church is about. The ministry of reconciliation, that's the job of getting people reconciled to God. 
I mean, Jesus took that marvelous plan where he, he died on the cross and did all this awesome stuff, and then he comes to New Spring Church and he says this, this job of connecting people back to God, I'm going to trust New Spring Church with this. And just so that we won't try to make it up on our own, he said, I'm also going to give you the message. I'll talk about that next week. So for the next few moments, I want to talk to you about God giving us the job of helping people reconcile with God. And I want to talk to you about what it means at New Spring Church so that hopefully you'll understand who we are and what our DNA is. As I said a few moments ago, the church is not about me, but I've been called to lead, and I've had the privilege of leading this church. In the first week of June, Mary Allison, I'll be here 36 years. And it's been the joy of my life outside of being married to her. So although the church is not about me at all, I owe it to you for you to hear from the leader's heart. I grew up in the first model of churches, a very good example of that first model. My dad was a pastor. And he, I believe, he loved God with all his heart and he was real. You know, this is too much information for a lot of you, but pastor's kids tend to be in one of two camps. I know what it's like to be a pastor's kid. I've raised three, and I have six grandkids, and four of them are pastor kids, pastor's kids. Either the pastor's kid doesn't want anything to do with the church. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a baby boomer, but I've got friends that grew up with me whose dads were pastors. You can get them into the church with a gun. They hate everything about the church. Or they're like me, and they love the church very much. But if you grew up in a system model church and you're like me, here, here's the thing. I grew up frustrated because I love the church very much. But I, and if you've ever grown up in a system model church or you've been in a system model church, I'm going to bet I've got some brothers and sisters here. You're hearing everything and you know it's important. And you know it's, it's awesomely important. And you're saying, it could be so much more. I grew up thinking that. You know, it's weird. <laughs> there are things that I do as a leader of New Spring that... I thought up when I was eight years old, and I used to hear my dad sort of butting his head against the wall trying to get something done, and I thought, if I'm, I thought at that time I was going to be a lawyer, but I thought if I'm ever a pastor, it's going to be like this, and I still do some of those things. I thought the church could be so much more. Well, I started pastoring when I was 20, and frankly, I started pastoring at other systems, model churches. It's just the way things were back in those days, you know. Pastors tended to copy what they had seen done, and what they, had, what they were doing was based on a systems model. As I said, I started pastoring when I was 20. Last week, I went back to the college that Mary Alice and I went to. It was a ministry college. It prepared students to go into ministry. It's a university now, but... Um, I hadn't been on the campus in a long time, and they had invited me back to speak at a conference. And, and uh, we, we, somehow I told the president, he's kind of new to the college, I told the president that Mary Alice and I got married in the chapel. So when Mary Alice and I arrived last Tuesday night before my message at this conference, uh, they did something kind of sweet. They had found pictures of our wedding, and, and they asked us to go up to the chapel, and they showed us the pictures of our wedding there and took a more modern picture of us there, one of those pictures. It's kind of sweet. But as I was walking out of the chapel, I pointed to an iron bench down the hill on the campus, and I said to the new president of the college, I said, when I was 19 years old, Mary Alice and I were on our way to chapel, and I told her, I will go anywhere God sends me except Kansas. <laughs> That's a fact. And, and don't get me wrong. I didn't have anything against Kansas. I'd never even been to Kansas before. But I'm a Texan, and I just felt like I didn't connect very well with the students from Kansas, you know, I felt like... You know, they were just a little bit standoffish, I thought. And I thought, I don't think I would do well there. But after being 36 years here, 36 years now, I consider myself a Kansan. I think like us. <laughs> and I think the Texans are kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> I used to say all the time, this is terrible, other, other services didn't get this. I used to say, if a tornado blows your house away in Texas, everybody come over to your house and help you cry. I said, if a tornado blows your house away in Kansas, they come over and say, that's too bad, then they help you build it back. That's Kansas. 
Well, anyway, this church in Kansas started contacting me. It was led at that time by a man who had been a mentor of mine, been one of my professors in college, and in 1978, he left to become pastor at Messiah Baptist Church, which is the church that we were. We were centrally located in those days in the middle part of town, and he was a wonderful man. But he was getting close to the end of his, I mean, he was not young when he came here. And so starting in 1981, I think or so, he started contacting me and said, you know, I can see the end from here. And I would love to be in a transition with you and see you be the next leader. And knowing how I felt about Kansas, you know, um, I found ways to tell him no politely for three years. But in September of 1984, he said, he said, I can't talk you into this, but he said, would you just come up and speak for us? Just see if you have any interest in coming. He said, would you come up and speak for a banquet, speak on a Sunday? And I said, okay, I'll do that. And I don't know what happened. I didn't know what happened that day, and I haven't known what's happened for the next 36 years. But for some reason, Mary Alice and I fell head over heels in love with this city and with this church. But when I came here, and I mean this from the most wonderful people in the world were in our church, but you have to understand it was typical in those days for a church like our church to be a systems model church. And I thought I had known legalism when I was in Texas, but I'd never known the brand of legalism that I experienced when I came to our church. This is way too much information, but just to give you some idea, there could be no drums, there could be no guitars. I could not have even been an usher because I have facial hair. If a person had been divorced, they couldn't serve in any ministry. And I used to think that's kind of weird because, you know, in a divorce, there are perpetrators and there are victims. That kind of put them all in one bag. I mean, here's the thing. We could not accept a, a church member from another church if they did not have Baptist baptism. That's the first thing I changed after I became lead pastor. I think I changed that about 12 minutes later. No, I don't want to give you the wrong impression because sweetest people in the world, and, and here's the thing, a number of the people who were there at that time, they were puzzled by why all those things too. But God did some cool things, and he began to bring people around me that even though I wasn't changing a whole lot, I could talk to. We spoke the same language. I think about Dan and Debbie Kubish who came in 1987. I found Dan looking for a car. Billy and Sherry Poor came in 1991. There was Mary Alice, and then a number of the members of our board now uh, were, were here in those days, and, and we could talk. And, 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 it, and one of the great blessings that I have is watching people who were there in those days who have made the entire trip and journey with us because they got it in those first days. To be honest with you, I spent 20 years of tweaking. But God has a way of bringing his children to decision points where we either have to stay in the wilderness or head for destiny. I changed all those things that you and I just talked about a few moments ago. But here's the thing. One of the problems with churches and with organizations is oftentimes leaders in an attempt to keep everything level will try to solve the problems a la carte and they won't deal with the internal culture that drives everything else. And if you're not a leader, you may not understand what I just said, but if you're a leader, I think you know what I mean. You know, it's like if you go to do a workout, if you get a, if you get a trainer to give you, a, you know, a professional workout, you may think, oh, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff with my arms and legs. But one of the first things a physical trainer will do was, is to help you with your core because everything works off the core. And that's the way a church, the way it's an organization, it's the way anything in life is. Everything has to change in the culture. I mean, you can change all the peripheral things, but until the culture changes, things are not going to change. I only have a few minutes. <laughs> and again, as I said, how do, you, how do you talk about 36 years and 30 minutes? But there were two moments. If you want to understand New Spring Church, you have to understand that there were two seasons in our church's life where, <laughs> forgive the vernacular, we pushed all the chips to the middle of the table and we bet everything on God. I am not being, I'm not being too fast and loose with words when I tell you we risked everything. We risked everything that was comfortable. See, in those days that I just described to you, we had no debts. We had paid everything off. We were sitting comfortable as a church. We were landlocked on 4.3 acres in the middle of town, and we had grown from about 350 to almost 500. The first moment of destiny lasted eight years, and, and I won't talk about it today. If you're really interested in learning more about it, there's a 2015 series called Divine Whispers. 
And in Divine Whispers, I tell the story about how God brought us out here and what a challenge it was and how that it lasted eight years and it was impossible for seven years and 51 weeks. (laughs) I won't say any more except say this. It was not a popular thing with a lot of our church to relocate. In those days, and this is one thing that I find curious, especially when I get in traffic out here, I used to hear over and over, Mark wants us to move 12 miles to the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Yeah. But I don't want to talk about that because it's a different kind of risk from the one that we began in 2004. By 2004... We were a visible church. We used, to be, we used to be called the best kept secret in Wichita because it was kind of hard to find us at Hillside and Mount Vernon. But when we moved out here in 1999, all of a sudden we're pretty visible. And by the way, I do want to make a point about the people in those days. You know, today, with all the thousands and thousands of people who attend New Spring, you could get the idea that we relocated with thousands of people. We didn't. The, the church that had the vision for this was a church of about 500 people. But by 2004, we'd grown to 1,200. And frankly, I'm going to be honest with you, a whole lot of the growth that we experienced, we experienced because we were sort of the visible church. We were kind of the new church on the block. And a lot of people, a lot of good people came in because they had a great vision. But there were also a number of people who came in who had what I would call a fortress mentality church. And this is one of the little nasty secrets of the system church. Oftentimes in a system church, especially as the culture declines, and we're in a decline of culture right now, there are a lot of Christians who can get the idea that the church exists as a fortress. It exists as a place for us to escape from all the culture. And I guess biblically, I mean, to come in and worship the Lord, and I guess in one respect you could call it an escape, but they take it a step further. It's like we've got to escape from the culture around us, and so we're going to become an inner group. We're going to become a clique of people, a group of insiders who come in, and we sort of huddle down and wait for Jesus to come. The real nasty little secret. And as I said a few moments ago, I wonder if certain aspects of the U.S. church has a shelf life of more than five to eight years. And I think I'm being liberal when I say eight years. And so many churches today have what I would call an insider focus. If you know the people there, then you're part of the group. If you know when to stand, when to sit, the minister talks in a jargon. They may raise money for evangelism to take place outside their walls. But the idea is in a lot of insider-minded churches, we want people who look like us, think like us, dress like us. We want people in here like us. Something snapped in me in 2004. I'd had the privilege of pastoring this church for 20 years. I loved what was happening. We had wonderful people here. I mean, on paper, I guess I had everything that a minister could want. At least a lot of, a lot of preachers would want that. I'm mean, as a sought-after conference speaker. We had no issues. We had no political issues inside our church. But I would just drive through the neighborhoods around our city, and I realized we were not building bridges to people who were spiritually unresolved. And I thought to myself, I got to the place where I said, if this is what I signed up for, I don't want to do this anymore. When I was 16 years old, my job, my, my goal in life was to be an attorney and to go into broadcast journalism and politics. I pastored a Baptist church for 20 years. I can assure you that's all the <laughs> politics I would ever want. <laughs> and I definitely get all the broadcasting I want today. But I'm serious. I said, if this is what it's all about, if all I'm going to do is get up on Sunday and come in and put another layer of lacquer on the already convinced, and I don't want to do this anymore. And thankfully, there were people around me I had staff, our trustee board in those days, they're some of the unsung heroes who said, Mark, we believe this too, we're with you. But there were also a lot who had come during those years, not so much the ones who had come from the past, but there were newer people who came in during those days. They came in because they thought we were a fortress, insider-minded church. And probably the worst title I've ever come up with for a series. I mean, this is, you guys know I'm always in a series. I, can't, this, I, I preached two weeks on a series called Bridge Builders versus Barrier Erectors. And I said a lot of times we want to build a bridge. We talk about building bridges, but we put up unintentional barriers. And I said we're going to take those barriers down and we're going to build bridges. We're not going to vary one centimeter from the word of God, but if there is methodology that can make us more effective, we will do anything to keep our out of hell. 
You know, like I said, if I said that today at New Spring, it was like, well, duh, of course. It hit the fan. And I'll tell you where it hit. In 2004, I've been teaching on this for a while. I mean, I thought I, I, thought I was giving a mea culpa. I thought I, I'm the one who's been pastor for 20 years, and I'm explaining that I let us get here, and we're not going to stay here anymore. But the area where it hit the fan was in the area of kids' ministry. Because for the first time in our ministry, we did something extraordinarily creative that was kind of like the beginnings of what you experience now in kids' world. And this had been on my heart ever since I'd been a kid. I mean, I'd been frustrated with what I'd seen in churches because here's the thing. I grew up ADD. I would go into Sunday school. It would be in this institutional room. We'd all be in gray metal chairs. There would be a lectern in the front, and some sweet, well-intentioned lady would stand up in front of all of us nine-year-old boys and say, okay, boys, set up straight, put your hands in your lap, and no talking. Amen. Well, I assure you, Mark, like Elvis, had left the building I might have still been there physically. But one of the first things I knew is if we're going to build bridges, we're going to have to build bridges to the next generation. And we want our kids' ministry to be the most exciting hour of their week. Not... I travel this country and talk to churches about all this, all this all the time. And I always tell them, not kids' ministry through the eyes of an adult, but kids' ministry through the eyes of a kid. I knew it was going to be a challenge when we changed, you know, it was going to look different. So here's what I did. In this wretched, every wife in the building is going to say, Mark, I can't believe you did this. But we were, it was survival. I said to Mary Allen, I would love for you to lead this. Because we had found something in those days, it was called G-Force, and, and, and it was not anything close to what we're doing for Kids World, but it was our first stuff. And I knew it was harder to criticize the pastor's wife than to criticize another lay leader. <laughs> So I said, Mary Alice, will you, will you take this un- under wing? And she said yes and be- began to build a team. And what was really beautiful is the team that she built were pretty much young college students who are now, you know, they're now in their 30s and they're, part, they're leaders in our ministry here. But it's a group of college kids. And, of course, they had the vision and they began G-Force. And it began to really reach out to our kids. But I, Mary Alice will tell you in those days, she had a group of parents that would stand in the back of the gym and look like this and cross their arms. So we knew there was a little pressure building up. And I should tell you that in the first 20 years I've been pastor here, no one would ever take me on personally. They might take on as a member of my staff, but no one would directly criticize me. I'd always been kind of the fair-haired boy, but that all evaporated in 2004. Because at those days, our deacons asked for a meeting with me. It had never happened before. I had always asked for the meetings with our deacons. Now, you should understand the trustees... They were the ones who had legislative ability, and they were, they were totally focused on this. But there were 15 deacons in those days. And I went into the meeting, and there was a lot of anger in the room. And several of the deacons, they tried to find sort of middle ground between where I was and, and the others. But there were some that were toxic in that, several who were toxic that night. And the weird thing was, they all wanted to tell me what a great pastor I had been but that I was about to go the wrong direction and some even suggested it was time for me to go. Two of the deacons that were in that room will be my heroes forever. One is in heaven, the longest serving judge in Sedgwick County, Judge Paul Clark. I'll never forget after all that criticism, Paul was the last one to speak. And I don't deserve this comment, but he said, gentlemen, I followed this man for a lot of years and I believe when he preaches, God speaks through him. I think I'll just stay with him. And Larry Dinsmore, who's one of our trustees today. I went home from that meeting in shock. And I sat down. I went straight down to my basement, sat down in my rocker recliner. And I thought, I've got two options here. I can either, <laughs> I can either capitulate, which looking back. See, I, I didn't even tell that story for five years. And when I told it, there were new springers who were here at the time. They said, Mark, we never knew that happened. I think it was a push for me to capitulate the vision. I thought I can either give in on the vision, which, by the way, that's a dangerous thing to do. You can't be a little bit pregnant. 
like the guy in the Civil War that tried to please everybody, wore a gray shirt and blue trousers, and both sides shot at him. I thought I could capitulate the vision, or I thought, I know I have communication skills. I thought I could walk out on stage next Sunday and tell what happened, and those guys would be in a world of trouble. But then I thought, if I did that, I'd start a war. And as I sat in my basement that night trying to figure, by the way, if you want the whole story on this, get the Divine Whisper series. It's a sermon called Say Nothing. It was as if the Holy Spirit said, say nothing. Just get up next week and preach like nothing happened. And I began to fast for 21 days. And when that happened in 2004, even though we went through a brutally difficult year, by the end of those 21 days, a lot of those who had been most critical had left, quietly stilled away. But a lot of things changed. Could I have five extra minutes? I know I'm in overtime. I just want you to know who we are. Maybe seven. that started four years of difficulty in that next four years a lot of hundreds of people left new spring some because our city was changing and we lost some corporations and businesses during that time but one change would lead to another change i mean in 2006 our church, we still, we still were averaging 1,200, but we sort of had this thing. There were those leaving and those coming in, and the ones who were coming in were coming in looking for a church. They had, all their lives they had dreamed of someplace like this, but it tended to be getting a lot younger. I mean, here's the thing. On, on Easter, it's post-COVID, so we're not back up to where we were, but we had 9,000 people here and 2,000 of them were kids. You have to understand, in 2006, because of the the demographic shift inside our church, we had to take all of our adult space and turn it over to kids' space. So we went from a Sunday school model to a groups model, which we'll hear about in week three of this series. Hey, my office became part of the four-year-olds. In fact, I lost the first four offices that I had here to kids' ministry. We will do anything for kids at New Spring Church, I assure you. But in 2006, and right before all those changes, it was just probably a very painful time, one of the worst I've ever been through, because there were a lot of people like, Mark, we've been through two years of turmoil, and we're still having to make adjustments. And I was trying to figure out some way to explain it. And I couldn't really figure out what to, t- what to say to explain why we were where we were. And then it was like God gave me the story. In those days, I still wore a lot of suits. If I wear a suit today, somebody's either passed or a wedding or something, you know, or I'm preaching in a systems church. (laughs) I didn't say that. That's not true. There's some great churches I wear suits to. But in those days, I, I used to buy suits, and I hated to pay retail for a suit because a suit costs as much as an appliance, you know? So I, I used to go to uh, a Dillard's outlet in Arlington, Texas, where I'm from the Metroplex. And sometimes it'd be five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars suits you could pick up for $150. And so I bought three suits down there, and one of them was a beautiful kind of charcoal-colored suit, really, really nice suit. This is a $600 suit, and I paid $150 for it. The only problem was they didn't do alterations. So I brought it back to Wichita, and there's a shop that had done my alterations for years here. And I walked into the shop, and I should have known something was wrong when I walked in, because even though it was the same building, it wasn't the same people. There were a couple of ladies there. And when I explained what I wanted, and in fact, I remember having them mark the suit, you know. And I, I used to sell clothes when I was in college, so I know how to mark a suit with pins. I'd never seen anything like that, but they were like pins going up through all, all, all through the suit. And I thought, well, I guess they know what they're doing. There's a sign outside that says it's an alterations place. I said, come back a few days later. I came back a few days. They hadn't even started on it. They said, we'll do it now. Stephen was about 10. We sat out there. I sat out there for an hour, and I thought, we'll show you through with it now. I poked my head back, and they said, oh, it's going to take a little more time. Another hour went by. I'm getting upset. I have ADD, and I also have OCD. I have all kinds of letters, <laughs> and Stephen is trying to calm me down. And after about two and a half hours, I went back, and I said, would you just bring it out as it is right now? And it, when they brought it out, I could not believe that any human being would do that to a nice suit because the left sleeve was hanging down like this. And the right sleeve was all pinned up like and and sewn up, and it was just mangled. All the way home, I groused about that. Stephen said, Dad's going to be okay. I said, no, it's not going to be okay. 
I get home, I said to Muriel, look what they did to this suit. Just throw it in the trash. Throw it in the trash. It's just trash now. Muriel's like, oh, Mark, just take it to another alteration shop. No, I'm not going to do that. But I couldn't throw it away, so I hung it up in my closet. So every day I would go back there and I would look at that suit, you know, the left sleeve hanging down, <laughs> right sleeve all sewn up and mangled like this. And it just made me mad over again. And Meryl's pleaded with me, Mark, just please take it to alteration. I said, I'm not going to take it to alteration shop because I'm going to go into this alteration shop and they're going to say, how did you let a brand new nice suit like this get in this condition? And I don't even want to stand there and try to explain it. But thankfully, I'm married to a very wise woman who is very calm with me. She said, please, Mark, just take it to another alteration shop. You spent money on it. It's a good suit. So I took it to an alteration shop on Rock over here. And in the last 15 years, the owners have become good friends of mine. That's the first time I ever met them. And I walked in with that awful suit with the left arm hanging down, the right arm all into that. And I held it up. Have you ever tried to explain something to somebody and it's just so complicated? You're like trying to get it all out in one syllable and it's like, I mean, it just sort of comes out of your mouth like this. So I've got this suit and I'm hanging it up and I'm trying to explain it. And the owner can tell, he can tell I'm not going to be somebody to listen to for any length of time. And I'll never forget what he said. He put his arm out and he said, sir, bring it to us. It's what we do. When I picked up the suit, it was perfect. For years, I would do this talk in that suit. But after 15 years, I actually finally had to throw it away a few weeks ago. But in 2006, when we were struggling still, great people were struggling to understand why so much was going on that was different. I wore that suit out that day, and I told the story, and I said, In the coming years, men and women and boys and girls are going to walk in our door with all kinds of brokenness. And they're going to walk into a church and wonder, am I going to be judged? Is the ceiling going to fall in on me? Will I know what to do or say? And they're going to struggle to tell us what happened. But I said, we want to be the church that says to everyone with a broken life, Bring it to us. It's what we do. God bless. Thank you very much. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.